Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPADPOD, the Sectarianism, Proxies, and Desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. Today, I'm joined by Oliver Schlumberger. Oliver is Professor of, Poli- of uh, Political Science and Comparative Politics and Middle East Studies at Tübingen University. He's written extensively on a range of factors pertaining to the Middle East, focusing on democracy, authoritarianism, uh, and and issues pertaining to those those themes across the past 15 years or so. So, Oliver, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real pleasure to have you on the show. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much. So, Oliver, I normally start with a question as to how you got interested in in the Middle East and political science more broadly. So, can you um, can you give us a brief introduction to your to your interest, please? That was two separate factors actually the middle east came to me in the form of a i had a school a friend at school who went uh for a year to israel and got engaged with a palestinian israeli guy and they brought with them books uh in arabic which he at the time be before amazon and so on yeah he couldn't get in germany and i was fascinated by essentially just the look at the language and you think you read the cover of a book but, but it's actually the back uh, cover and these kinds of things so that was the initial in- interest in the middle east and then of course you realize at one point as a young person that there's a lot of countries that are where conflicts are carried out much more violently than in britain or germany or europe and then I started asking myself, how come that we are so many on this planet and how we could organize ourselves in a way that we don't hit on each other's heads all the time? That was probably my initiation to politics. <laughs> okay. What age were you at that point, Oliver? Like 18. Okay. Interesting. So it's at a quite formative stage. Did that have an impact on your, on your um, university career? Yes, it did. Actually, it did uh, determine my choice of political science as a field of study, <laughs> even though I was tempted to go into biology and microbiology more particularly at a certain point in time. But um, I knew I would have ha- had to learn so much by heart in order to arrive where I wanted to go uh, in biology. So I thought, let's rather try with political science. <laughs> sure. So... You did an undergraduate degree in, in political science. And when was your, your first then serious scholarly engagement with, with the Middle East, beyond looking at the books that your friend had brought back from, from Israel? Oh, that was actually during under, undergrad times. Even okay. during undergrad times, I knew that this was the region I was most interested in. Probably, uh, again, for a simple reason, that I was so fascinated with how unveiled power was visible in Middle Eastern contexts so much so much more unveiled than we see power um, manifest itself in in our societies, right? Where it's, it's much more hidden and and uh, less tangible. Sure. Well, so did that come out of a of a course on Middle East politics, or was it more of a comparative issue that that teased out some of the peculiarities of Middle Eastern politics? It probably came out of a repetitive reading of Elias Canetti's uh, Mass and Power. <laughs> right, okay. It was published in 1960, I think, on which he worked for, I don't know, 28 years or so. Um, a very down-to-earth, non-academic 
non-jargon book. Mm. Um, and that was easy to relate to what was visible in what my teachers told me about uh, in, in more Middle East related courses. Sure. Okay. So that, that's, that's really interesting that it's not necessarily straight through engaging with the region, but, but through other, other types of questions. When did you first travel to the region? That must have been in the early 90s when I did uh, an internship, internship with the German Cultural Institute in Damascus at the time. Okay. The old Assad still, of course. Yeah. And uh, I stayed a couple of months there uh, trying to work, do some work as a German, foreign, German as a foreign language instructor and uh, in the cultural section, helping organize exhibitions and concerts and stuff. <clears throat> and of course, it's in a place like Syria at the time that was hardly possible without the political context in, in which all this takes place. Mm, of course. And as probably every student of political science, we all dream of being UN Secretary General at one point and then <laughs> we become disillusioned and we drop these plans and some may think about joining uh, their own country's diplomatic service, uh, including me, I'm no exception to this, and then you get disillusioned by so and so many <laughs> encounters with those diplomats. Yeah. Uh, and then you look for other options. Right, okay. That's that's really interesting, and I'm sure that many of our listeners can relate to that that sort of disenfranchisement and frustration with both the UN and individual country experiences. What are your your memories from that time in, in Damascus? As, as someone who who hadn't visited the region but was there for the first time, what, what are the, the memories that stay with you? from that period? Some of what really stays with me is the kind of uh, very warm-hearted social relations in the absence of a state that protects you, sort of the kind of um, looking after each other as citizens, uh, making sure that nobody gets lost, uh, uh, much closer social relationships than in uh, what uh, some would call our cold capitalist Western societies. Remember that was a time when uh, Syria was firmly rooted in the still socialist tradition. Bananas were forbidden to import. The ban was just lifted two years after. So that was a time when the so nominally socialist heritage um, inherited from the former Eastern Bloc was still very present in everyday life. And at the same time, it was a dictatorial surrounding in which uh, nobody was really safe ever. Yeah. So you tend to uh, engage in closer personal relations and sort of protect each other. Sure. That sounds like a, a really interesting time and, and, and somewhat at odds to, to your own your own upbringing, your own direct experiences back home. Were there any personal stories that, that you can share of, of your own experiences with this sort of socialist uh, experiment and, and the, the tangible or almost tangible sense of power and, and fear of an authoritarian state? Far less so in the former than in the latter. This socialist experiment, as you know, uh, was never carried out in the Eastern European or Russian kind of style in the Middle East. Yeah. So that was nominally socialist, but always with the touch of Arab socialism, which uh, meant something 
quite different from what it meant in Eastern Europe or Russia or in the former Soviet Union. Uh, as to the authoritarian context in everyday life, yes, very much so. I think it was on the second day of, after my arrival that uh, uh, the head of my internship giving institution told me a story about him driving out the street towards Beirut and a French diplomatic car being stopped by the local Muhabarat where the guy was dragged out of the, his car in front of his family and his ear cut just because he had cut the car of the Muhabarat guys. So this, this absence of any sort of law uh, or legality or, or um, yeah, we, we, we tend to call it the rule of law. Um, so the, the complete absence of the rule of law uh, makes, of course, the one strong who has who holds power and makes uh, powerless those who don't hmm. even so it was quite amazing to see that even those untouchable diplomats would physically be harmed if they stepped across lines which were not deemed sure. seen well at the time i could tell you hundreds of stories from different countries uh, that i personally experienced uh, which are too horrible to tell and too uh, nasty to listen to. I'm sure. Um, but, I, uh, but I think we all know, at least those of us who work in this field, I think we know about uh, these stories and every one of us has experienced dozens of these uh, um, episodes or interactions where we are not usually as academics the ones to be physically hurt or even expelled from a country. But there is something called secondary traumatization, uh, which researchers can be exposed to if, if you have too, much, too many atrocities uh, in your near surroundings and you somehow start feeling guilty as a researcher because you witness all this, but you cannot help the people concerned with whom you might be even befriended, which might be your close colleagues and so on. So that is something that doesn't pass without leaving an imprint on your soul. Yeah. Do you have any advice to people as to how to deal with that, that secondary trauma? Oh, <laughs> I think I, for most of my life, I have just been dealing with this, uh, trying to find my own personal ways, trying to keep up uh, your academic honesty as much as is possible. Yeah. I've also experimented with trying to advise Western governance, governments uh, in their policy formulating vis-a-vis these countries where uh, the rule of law is absent uh, with to no avail, I must confess, but you still, it's a little bit with, like with Albert Camus uh, in, in the, uh, what is it, uh, the Sisyphus stones, you know, the, yeah. the fact that you, that you know that the stone will roll off the mountain does not prevent you from the necessity of rolling it up again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, just because it's right to do it. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, that's that's very frustrating, and again, something that I'm sure people can can relate to. We've I imagine. Sorry, but I imagine this is far less frustrating than just uh, go with the flow and play the game. And you know, I, I find that far less frustrating, um, even though you might may not see large scale results in what you do. At least uh, you can be sure about whose side you're on and whose side you're not on. Yeah, that I guess that's, that's true. But is there not a sense of trying to be as, as sort of as objective as an academic can be 
speaking truth to power and knowing that the same the same processes will continue to repeat time and time again then again what is knowledge what do we know i mean sometimes some unexpected things do happen yeah and sometimes there are these pieces and glimpses of hope so i don't know um Probably, but this is not a general advice to anybody. This is just how I was trying to cope yeah, with, it, with it. In fact, sure. No, and I appreciate the the candor that you've you've just shared that that experience with. Uh, we've, we've sort of jumped around a bit, Oliver. But can we go back to your PhD days very quickly? And you've got, obviously had this experience in Syria of, of power and authoritarianism, and and seeing how it affects life. Did that? shape the decision to do a PhD in a particular area did you say would you say that that had an impact on your research career in terms of trajectory afterwards um maybe a little bit uh but but there was also a lot of accident in in the choice of PhD topics I, I okay. wrote my PhD on the politics of economic reform and its outcomes on a on a macro economic on this economic systems level and i did this because i didn't want to repeat uh, syria as a case i did this in a comparative study on egypt algeria jordan and the emirates okay <laughs> so i went into these countries and tried to get my hands on whatever piece of information i could get talking to both sides to the policy making side and to the entrepreneurial side and to the um administrative side along with a couple of journalists in in those countries and i think it sounds logical probably to deal with economics or the political economy because um, on the one hand the outcomes of economic processes affect everybody in in their everyday life uh, but then again also uh, the decisions taken in the sphere of political economy uh, tend to be quite far-reaching and affect everyday lives to a larger extent than, let's say, uh, foreign trade, a specific foreign trade or a specific foreign policy decision. So that that field of political economy was quite at hand. In particular, as I had already worked on the political economy of Syria uh, when I was there uh, after my graduate or during my graduate studies. Uh, which was once again uh, a one-year time in, in Damascus, still under the old Assad regime. Um, and frankly, there is also a, a piece of pragmatism in this because the political economy side, economic reform, was one of those subjects where in a system as closed as the ones we see in this region uh, was possible for a foreign young researcher to work on. I mean, you wouldn't be able to work on a human rights situation or what have you. The more explicitly political subjects were off, uh, off, off reach, of course. So that was another factor that made me turn towards political economy because you could sell it differently. Yeah, sure. So where does the, the interest in authoritarianism come from then? Given that I would imagine most people know you from your wonderfully titled articles looking at uh, the, the various aspects of authoritarian rule, non-democratic legitimacy, um, regime change without democratization. Where, where did that come from? Essentially, this is uh, the same source or origin or inspiration that I that basically runs as a thread uh, throughout my 
professional and private life, uh, which is uh, some sort of obsession with the uses and abuses of power and however it manifests itself. Right. Okay. It sounds like a very abstract category, but it is, of course, a very concrete category if you feel your nails being pulled out or if you yeah. uh, are mistreated by anyone on the basis of what. Yeah, and, that, and this is where the questions come into play. And this is when questions like who authorizes somebody to hold power and who authorizes somebody to act in a certain way against those who do not hold power. So essentially, it's really a preoccupation with power in all its dimensions and uh, manifestations that that <laughs> carries me through. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's a fascinating collection of, of articles that you've, you've compiled over your career, um, again, with, with some wonderful titles. But I, I wonder, can you just reflect briefly, Oliver, on how you think the the field of, of authoritarian studies or broadly democratization studies has evolved since you since you started writing on this in the in the mid 2000s obviously there's been the arab uprisings and the counter revolutions that we've seen since then um, i wonder how you see this this subdiscipline evolving in light of everything that's happened yeah, I, I actually was in the very, very beginning of the 2000s that I started uh, publishing on this. And that was a time when we were just out of the 90s where a lot of literature had appeared uh, in which the initial revamping of studies in, in what Philip Schmitter and, and other people call transitology, the study of change of in political of political regimes became very, uh, one of the most prominent uh, subfields in comparative politics as a discipline as a yeah. subdiscipline and we were just out of this period remember in 1960 uh, this this famous four volume transitions from authoritarian rule edited by Schmitter O'Donnell and Whitehead was published and in the subsequent decade of the 90s basically <clears throat> um People who had wrote, uh, read this uh, uh, and who were fascinated about it, uh, and who also had the ethical impetus that it would be so wonderful if democracy could go get hold in places where former, um, formerly people were subjected to authoritarian rule, uh, that this literature was being applied to all sorts of world regions, including the Middle East, and then uh, that was the time when I was. When I gained my first experience and on on hand first hand experience in the region, and it's so squarely contradicted to what whatever I saw in the region, mm. so I thought this cannot be. There is some misguided uh, notion about what's going on in this region because what was going on was in fact not the precursors to some sort of democratization processes, and uh, as as in many um, as for many people who try to work academically, there was a fundamental. Uh, disagreement with what was being published that that made me think and and say hold on there there is uh, something wrong here with the literature which we need to correct and that yeah. was when I started writing about critical remarks on on this notion of the Middle East sort of collective collectively democratizing mm-hmm. which was of course what had happened at the time in Eastern Europe. Yeah. And what happened a decade earlier in Latin America, but I somehow sensed that this was not exactly the same thing that was happening in the Middle East. There were processes of political liberalization 
as probably globally everywhere. Um, also because of the end of the Cold War and a certain relaxation of the international climate, which made uh, non-democratic regimes maybe a little bit less tight and less illiberal than they used to be under the threat of uh, competing superpower rivalry. So that was in fact a period of liberalization, but not of democratization. And that is where I thought at the time that parts of the literature had gotten it a bit wrong. And then uh, slowly but surely there was uh, others who, who also felt the same way I did. And uh, the community grew bigger, not only uh, of students of the Middle East, but of students elsewhere. So by now we have, I think, a, a, a really massive literature on what I tend to call the new research on authoritarianism, where authoritarianism was not only studied because uh, as, as sort of the background of democratization processes, but in it, in it for itself, in its own right. And I think as academics, our first and foremost task is to try to understand the world around us rather than to uh, change the world around us. That's probably the difference between politicians and political scientists. And therefore, um, this under trying to understand authoritarianism in its own right has become has then become a, a very vast stream within comparative politics. Yeah, and then we're already in the year two thousand twelve, maybe. Right. And then there's a dramatic shift in terms of events on the ground uh, through the, the Arab uprisings and and what many referred to at the time as the Arab Spring, evoking memories of what happened in Prague, of course, and this. <laughs> this new democratic moment driven by popular protests. But ultimately that, that proved to be premature and, and in, in many cases problematic. But I wonder, to what extent do you think that, that the, the nature of authoritarianism changed after the Arab uprisings? Is it that there was, there was a shift in tactics in the, the very style and nature of authoritarianism? Or is it just more of the same, albeit in a slightly more violent manner? Oh, I, uh, I, he I hesitate to generalize in this respect because, sure. after all, that what you call democratic moment was not in vain in all cases. Of if course. we look into Tunisia, yeah. even though arguably there were very, very peculiar circumstances that allowed this outcome of, and at least however defective or and however uh, uh, imperfect, but still nominally and, and substantially democratic polity to be established in Tunisia. So I don't think that the circumstances that enabled Tunisia to democratize can be, uh, are present at all in any other Arab country yeah, of course. Uh, at the moment. But uh, so let's, let's first pin down that the democratic moment was not everywhere subdued. Yeah. There is this exception. Second, uh, whether or not uh, authoritarian rulers hardened after the experience of their popular uprisings they had to confront and, and uh, clamp down onto. Uh, that, that's something that looks quite differently from one country to the next. If you look into Algeria, which uh, lifted its state of emergency quite early on, whereas others enacted one. So the reactions were quite differently, from, different from one another, even though you do have patterns where uh, dictators just did what was already tried and tested in that they basically tried to uh, allocate uh, first as a 
first measure allocate vast amounts of resources to their population. Buying off dissent is, is, was still one of the uh, credos uh, by which Arab rulers reacted to the protests. Uh, and and uh, a former PhD of mine did a very neat uh, collection of uh, all those countries' financial reactions, which is amazing. Um, so, And then you have countries like Egypt, where autocracy, even though in place before, was seriously shaken up and as a reaction later on reconsolidated in a much more hardened way which probably Egyptians could not imagine during the days of Mubarak that all those established red lines would become unknown to them once more yeah. because the regime itself seemed so uh, nervous and unsettled that everything was suspicious and everybody was suspicious. Uh, sitting in a cafe was uh, dangerous and going to a museum would be dangerous because what would people want with all this arts and culture stuff? That's something very suspicious to those regime uh, power holders. And, you know, so in that sense, there is these cases where, like in Egypt, everything really hardened. And then there is those countries where the protests were not so massive and where there was no comparable rupture uh, between regimes and societies. Uh, Morocco could be an instance of that, where you have some uh, modifications to the constitutions, a reform process spearheaded by the king, uh, an opposition, yes, but uh, relatively, relatively easily and relatively quickly fragmented again and um, put back in their natural place, as the rulers would probably say. Um, at least not being a real challenge to the to the uh, elites. So I hesitate to to really generalize here. Yeah, I can does certainly really, understand really that. Really, the question does it? No, well, it's. I think it's certainly incredibly useful and important to to stress the the importance of context, both spatially and temporally. So, so thank you for for doing that. So, yeah, I think it it does a job. Uh, Oliver, we've taken up a huge amount of your time already, but if I may ask one final question. And <laughs> yes, that concerns um, if you were to offer guidance in terms of new scholars working on authoritarianism in the Middle East. And, and they said to you, Professor Schlumberger, we, we want some guidance in terms of where you think the important areas of new knowledge are concerning authoritarianism, where would you point them? What would you suggest that they explore and look at? Well, one of the first, one of the first fields uh, in which innovation has taken place and is taking place now would probably be um, the quick, the quite rapid enhancement of what I tend to call digital dictatorship. Um, not that this ends up or leads to a complete change of policies or the politics of countries and their rulers, but it certainly enhances a lot of capabilities on which authoritarian leaders have always relied upon, had to rely upon heavily. And if you look back into history, that those totalitarian leaders we had, the Stalins, the Hitlers, the Mussolinis, if you look back into these days where you had totalitarianism, which was by some scholars defined as the, the total control over society, they would probably have been so jealous 
of the means that dictators nowadays have at their disposal to actually implement what those historical examples would only have wished for. So I would advise students to look into uh, the developments and the learning processes that are going on among elites uh, in the application of technical, new technical devices, uh, big data collections, mm. online uh, real-time surveillance. If you look in, and this is not only for the Middle East, this is, goes for all authoritarian countries. If you look into China, if you see that in the uh, Xinjiang province, uh, every citizen is by law required to hold an end-user mobile device with them at, at, at all times. Otherwise, you are uh, violating the law and can be incarcerated. Yeah, you know, this is sort of the perfection of what authoritarians can dream of. And this, uh, much of this, uh, of the equipment that is necessary to, to actually engage in these kinds of online um, in, in the kinds of online techniques uh, or, or dictatorship um, uh, technicalities is present in the Middle East. Hmm. In some countries, we see secret services and information agencies who are wary to actually put them into use because once you let algorithms determine who is suspicious and who is not, then it is not so easy to have your own name wiped off a list of suspects yeah even if you belong to those services. So some, some of the, even within the services, are quite afraid of using these things and putting them into practice, apart from uh, questions of, of capacity, uh, which in some cases first needs to be built. So there is some hesitance. There is some lack of capacity yet. And the Middle Eastern countries will certainly not be the front runners in this development, which clearly and, and um, unambiguously is China. There is no other country on earth that is as advanced as China in, in these techniques, but they are present in the Middle East. They should be studied much more structured in a much more structured fashion than they have been before. And nobody is actually able to do this right now. We have a lot of people who have embarked on this, uh, but we have very few people who bother to actually go into the technicality details about uh, of studying the hows and whens and whys of, of new techniques of authoritarian leadership. So I think this is something that is still completely understudied. And we need to, uh, there, there is a literature on, on um, big data and uh, data protection and privacy and citizens' rights in established democracies. This is existing. But what is less studied is uh, the digital side, not of democracies, but of dictatorships. Sure. Thank you. That, I mean, that's fascinating and albeit incredibly scary and terrifying at the same time. But uh, thank you. I think that's a really useful guide and, and point of, of direction for anyone looking at, at exploring these things further. But Oliver, thank you so much. We've taken up so much of your time and, and I just want to say thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure to, to talk with you. I've learned a lot. I've got a lot to think about as always. So thank you so much for joining Bye -bye. us today. Have I taken in too much of your time? No, you need to be going. Uh, it's absolutely fine. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. So thank you so much for joining us. And as always, thank you for listening. Until next time.